Welcome. You're listening to Blood Advances Talks. Blood Advances Talks are scholarly review articles that are presented in an audio format and published in the American Society of Hematology's open access journal, Blood Advances. Transcripts for Blood Advances Talks undergo the same rigorous peer review process as all articles published in Blood Advances and can be downloaded by visiting bloodadvances.org. We thank you for listening. My name is Martin Tallman from the Department of Medicine and Leukemia Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. The title of my talk is Choosing for Whom to Recommend Halogenic Transplantation for AML and First Remission, a Continued Complicated Conversation. The topic today is how we choose which patients with AML will benefit from an allogeneic stem cell transplant in their first complete remission. It's impressive to us that this is a question that is still being debated. This issue was addressed in a number of studies when I was a fellow three decades ago. At that time, we looked at clinical factors that might help differentiate which patients would benefit from bone marrow transplantation as opposed to consolidation chemotherapy alone. We found that female sex, a higher number of circulating blasts at presentation, a shorter duration of symptoms, and the absence of hepatitis during induction were predictive of better outcomes with transplant. That study was published in 1989. Now, three decades later, progress has indeed been made in that we have multiple sophisticated tools to stratify patients by risk, including cytogenetics, FISH, molecular genetics, and flow cytometry. Even so, the question of who will benefit from a transplant after the achievement of first complete remission remains as important today as it was in 1989. While molecular genetics and cytogenetics perhaps have the most important influence, the decision to recommend a transplant is also based on the patient's age and the perceived or calculated risk of transplant-related mortality, as well as on the motivation of the patient. While the availability of a donor is still a factor, haploidentical grafts are making this less of an issue. Donors can now be found for up to 90% of patients, suggesting that transplantation is currently underutilized, although other factors should be considered. Our main considerations in recommending for or against transplantation focus on weighing the benefits of relapse reduction against the expected toxicities. And of course, we work closely with our transplant colleagues to optimize the donor type and conditioning regimen. Some clinicians might consider transplanted patients with favorable risk disease, given data from Slovak and colleagues published in Blood 2000, which suggests that transplant may be preferable to chemotherapy in favorable risk patients. However, there are caveats to consider in the small numbers used for the analysis. A 2007 hovan sack study published in Blood showed that patients with favorable risk disease did not have a significant benefit in disease-free survival if they underwent transplantation, whereas intermediate and poor-risk patients did. Additionally, transplant-related toxicities and graft-versus-host disease continue to present limitations and may impair quality of life for these patients. While addressing chronic graft-versus-host disease is outside the scope of our current discussion, 
we do recognize that modifying risk factors for graft-versus-host disease using prophylaxis and optimizing the donor source can lessen the risk and may make transplantation a more appealing option in the future. For now, in the favorable risk group, transplantation may introduce morbidity for a potentially modest benefit as compared to the benefit we see in other risk groups. Therefore, we generally recommend intensive chemotherapy alone for patients with favorable risk disease. This includes those with core binding factor leukemia, cytogenetic translocations, without a CKID mutation, those with favorable molecular abnormalities, such as NPM1 mutation without FIT3ITD in the setting of a normal karyotype, or those with biallelic CEPP-alpha mutations. If transplant-related mortality was let's say under 5%, we might realize the benefit of graft versus leukemia effect even in favorable risk AML, and in that case, recommend transplant for virtually all patients with AML at first remission. Over the decades, treatment-related mortality has certainly decreased. However, in addition to relapse, it still presents a limitation to transplantation. Despite the fact that we have more tools to differentiate those patients with favorable risk from those with poor risk, the field is getting more complicated. Traditionally, core binding factor leukemias with CKID mutations were classified as intermediate risk. However, more recent data presented at ASH 2016 by you and colleagues suggests that it depends in part on which CKID mutation is present. Outcomes for KIT N822K mutated patients treated with consolidation chemotherapy may be better than that for KIT D816 patients. And therefore, the prognosis of patients with core binding factor AML and CKID mutations may vary. While most patients with favorable risk disease are not recommended to undergo allogeneic transplant, those with poor risk disease are almost always recommended for the procedure if they're otherwise a suitable candidate. For those with definite poor-risk cytogenetics, for example, those with complex or monosomal karyotype, poor-risk molecular genetics, for example, a P53 mutation, or therapy-related disease, we recommend transplant in first remission. In some instances, the definition of poor risk based on molecular genetics is still controversial. Patients with FLT3 ITD mutations are usually considered to fall into the poor risk category. However, those with FLT3 TKD mutations may not have as poor a prognosis. Additionally, FLT3 ITD may be favorable, intermediate, or poor risk depending on the allelic burden and the co-mutational status of NPM1 and DNNT3A. Nevertheless, today, most patients with FLT3 ITD positive AML in first remission are likely best served by undergoing an allogeneic transplant. This becomes even more complicated with the recent approval of mitostorin for the treatment of FLT3 mutated AML. The use of mitostorin during induction and consolidation may modify the disease course enough to change how we risk stratify patients. The phase three study also included a maintenance phase of treatment. Although the trial was not designed to evaluate the effect of post-consolidation maintenance, this does present novel, exciting strategy and warrants further evaluation. We also know that patients with AML who proceed to transplant with P53 mutations do poorly. 
Lidocaine colleagues reported in 2016 in the British Journal of Hematology that patients with P53 mutated AML have a three-year overall survival of 10% as compared to 33% for patients with P53 wild-type disease. As such, although we recommend transplantation in AML patients with P53 mutation, we need novel strategies to address this disease after a patient has achieved a complete remission. It is possible that post-transplant therapies may decrease the relapse rate, but these approaches are still being developed. For poor-risk patients, we do recommend transplant, but preferably on a clinical trial evaluating a novel conditioning regimen or novel pre- or post-transplant agents, if at all possible. Perhaps the greatest impact of molecular profiling has been on intermediate-risk patients, among whom discrimination of prognosis is now enhanced. In general, we do recommend transplantation for most intermediate-risk patients. There are cases in which patients with intermediate-risk disease may not wish to undergo the procedure, and we consider such cases on an individual basis. For example, we recently saw a patient with intermediate-risk AML who had normal cytogenetics at the time of diagnosis and who asked for our opinion on whether or not to pursue a transplant. We considered whether or not factors in his case might make us favor transplantation. The patient required two courses of induction before achieving a complete remission, which does not necessarily constitute a definite indication itself for transplant. There was some discussion that the patient may have had an antecedent myelodysplastic syndrome. However, this could never be supported based on pathology or the patient's cytogenetic analysis. Had this been the case, it may have influenced our decision toward recommending transplant. It also may have influenced our choice of induction therapy, as recent data suggests that the use of CPX351 in AML with myelodysplasia-related changes may improve post-transplant outcomes. Molecular analysis also frequently influences our decision in intermediate-risk patients. Richard Schlenk and colleagues and the German-Austrian AML study group published a study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2008 about the prognostic significance of NPM1, CLIP3ITD, MLL, and CEBP-alpha double mutations. Those with NPM1 without CLIP3ITD and those with CEBP-alpha double mutations had the best prognosis, whereas those with MLL partial tandem duplications tended to fare worse. Today, we have gene panels that can assess hundreds of mutations at a time, and therapy in patients with targetable mutations is starting to change. For example, the discovery of a FLT3 ITD mutation would lead us to consider treatment with a FLT3 inhibitor. Similarly, the finding of an IDH2 mutation would motivate us to offer a patient a clinical trial with inositinib in the upfront setting. Aside from identifying patients who have certain mutations as candidates for targeted therapy, the prognostic impact of most other mutations has not yet been determined. And this was the case with our patient, who had mutations in genes whose prognostic impact has not yet been defined well enough to convince us to recommend for or against transplant. The patient asked us what his cure rate might be with consolidation chemotherapy alone which has been described in the literature to be 50% for patients with intermediate-risk disease. In one meta-analysis published in JAMA in 2009, suggesting that there may be additional relapse-free survival benefit of about 
in carrying out a transplant. There are, of course, significant risks inherent in pursuing transplantation. In addition to transplant-related mortality, there may be trade-offs in regards to graft-versus-host disease, which can increase rates of non-relapse mortality and decrease overall survival, and patients' quality of life can be significantly affected. Ultimately, our patient elected to move forward with four cycles of high-dose cytarabine consolidation therapy alone. And immunophenotyping by flow cytometry showed that he was in a minimal residual disease negative complete remission. The successful completion of four cycles of intensive consolidation diminishes our enthusiasm for subsequent transplantation. Minimal residual disease status has emerged as an important issue in AML, but its use in influencing whether or not a patient should undergo transplant remains uncertain. MRD has previously been measured by flow cytometry. However, newer data suggests that molecular methods may also be useful in determining MRD status and may identify a distinct subset of MRD-positive patients. There are data to suggest that MRD positivity may be a more adverse prognostic factor than age alone, and that MRD-positive younger patients have a significantly shorter survival than MRD-negative patients older than 60 years of age. Does this mean that all MRD-positive patients should preferentially go to transplant? Araki and colleagues showed that patients with AML in an MRD-positive CR by flow cytometry had a three-year overall survival similar to patients who had active AML at the time of transplantation. This suggests that the presence of MRD should be considered when deciding whether or not a patient should proceed to transplant, and perhaps additional consolidation or other novel approaches should be considered if a patient is MRD positive. Indeed, we are reluctant to proceed to a transplant if a patient has MRD and now consider additional therapy with targeted agents, IDH1 or IDH2 inhibitors or FER3 inhibitor, for example, if an actionable target is present, or if not, with perhaps a hypomethylating agent. Whether or not these strategies will prove to be effective in converting patients to an MRD-negative state remains under evaluation. It is also not clear whether or not all MRD is created equal. Current research efforts are examining whether or not certain patients with higher antigenic burdens at the time of transplant may be more likely to benefit from graft-versus-leukemia effect, a potent immunotherapeutic mechanism for eradicating MRD. This may lead to the discovery that a patient's AML immunophenotype contributes to their post-transplant outcome. This GVL effect may also be seen more prominently in patients with WT1 vaccination or in those with certain HLA haplotypes. Post-transplant therapies are currently under study and may demonstrate benefit in the future. The increasingly widespread use of haploidentical grafts with post-transplant cyclophosphamide makes allografting more feasible and safer, even in older adults. Partly because of this, our center considers offering transplant to patients up to 80 years of age if they are good candidates. In addition to any post-transplant therapy they may receive, many other factors may be involved in determining a patient's course after transplant, including the characteristics of their AML, the conditioning regimen, and graft source chosen, comorbid conditions, and social support systems. However, if the patient were found to be MRD negative, 
would he need a transplant at all? The answer to this question is still under debate. If patients who achieve MRD negativity undergo transplant, data from the Iraqi group suggests that the three-year overall survival may be as high as 73%. However, we do not know how these patients would fare if they received no further treatment. It's still unclear whether or not the achievement of MRD-negative CR may be a surrogate marker for improved disease-free survival without transplant. The decision to pursue transplantation in the absence of MRD has emerged as a new question for contemporary debate, and we hope not for the next three decades. So the question of which AML patients to transplant in first complete remission was timely in 1989, and it remains so today. Are we closer to an answer? Yes, but perhaps only modestly so. It's still complicated. This text was co-authored by Dr. Kamal Mandrajani, a third-year fellow in the Department of Medicine at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And we thank Dr. Sergio Geralt, Chief of the Bone Marrow Transplant Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for his helpful comments. You've been listening to Blood Advances Talks. Please visit bloodadvances.org for more audio reviews and for information on how to subscribe to the Blood Advances Talks podcast. A full transcript of this podcast can be found online. Music for Blood Advances Talks is performed by the Art Tipolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Tipolo. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. We thank you for listening.